Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. sirens. Today we are talking about Arsenic and Old Lace, which is a 1944 film starring Raymond Massey, Peter Laurie, Priscilla Lane, Jack Carson, Gina Dare, Josephine Hall, and also, by the way, Cary Grant. It was written by the Epstein brothers, who you may recognize from uh, Casablanca, which they worked on in between when this movie was written and when it was released. It was uh, based on a wildly successful Broadway play, and it was produced and directed by Frank Capra. Um, On Halloween, Mortimer Brewster, a prominent critic of marriage, marries Elaine Harper, the minister's daughter who grew up next door to him. Elaine goes to her father's house to tell her father about the marriage and pack for the honeymoon while Mortimer returns to Abby and Martha, the aunts who raised him in the old family home. Mortimer's brother, Teddy, who believes he is Theodore Roosevelt, resides with them. And while he's there, Mortimer finds a corpse hidden in the window seat. He assumes uh, in horror that Teddy's delusions have led him finally to murder Aunt Abby and Aunt Martha cheerfully explain that they, in fact, are responsible for this death and that as serial murderers, they minister to lonely old bachelors by ending their suffering. The bodies are buried in the basement uh, by Teddy, uh, uh, who believes that they are yellow fever victims who perished in the building of the Panama Canal. While Mortimer is in the process of digesting this information and figuring out how he can like bring order to all this chaos, his estranged and very deranged brother Jonathan arrives with his accomplice, a plastic surgeon named Dr. Einstein. Jonathan is, of course, also a serial murderer, uh, and he's trying to escape the police and dispose of his latest victim. Utter and delicious chaos ensues. That was really hard to sum up. <laughs> you did a good job. Usually it's like two sentences. That was that was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot. It was a lot to like cram into 30 seconds or whatever. So this is also a special episode besides being November. We also have... Uh, two special guests on today. Our spouses are joining us for the first time ever to uh, talk all things sirens. Yes. Welcome, Mike and Jen. Yay. Hello. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Delighted to be here. Hillary, do you want to introduce us to some trivia? Because I feel like there's probably a lot. The main pieces of trivia are related to the fact that This was a very successful Broadway show. Um, Many of the people who were in the movie um, appeared also on stage. Um, The Broadway show um, opened in January 1941 and ran for 1,400 performances. The aunts, Josephine Hall and Gina Dare, reprised their roles. Um, Boris Karloff actually was in the Broadway version, um, and he was not allowed to leave the production by the play because they were afraid that his absence would mean that the play would tank. So there are a lot of jokes in the movie ongoing about um, how Jonathan uh, looks like Boris Karloff, and that's because he was played by Boris Karloff on Broadway. Cary Grant considered his acting in this movie to be horribly over the top and um, often called it his least favorite of all of his movies. So the one moment when I disagree with Cary Grant. Uh, (laughs) The production code administration asked the filmmakers to tone down the sexual frustration between the newlyweds Elaine and Mortimer. Apparently this is the toned down version. I... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did wonder what happened behind that tree. (laughs) in the one scene where they're in the cemetery Um, something surely happened this movie is also an early example of aggressive product placement by the bell company who provided the Hmm. um the film with their new models of the french telephone at the time of production warner brothers had announced that the brewster house was the largest set ever built at the studio the the set is actually an entire full fully furnished house and there are fully furnished rooms in the house that um, never appear in, in on film. There were some f- scenes that were filmed and then were eventually cut. So there's a, it's a whole house. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that stinks because, I mean, one of the frustrating things about this movie is like, if it was like very static, you mm-hmm. know, and then and I wanted to see some of those other rooms. 
Right. The benefit of it being a play rather than, or being a movie rather than a play is that you mm-hmm. could go to other places. Warner Brothers suggested that um, Humphrey Bogart could replace Boris Karloff on Broadway, um, which would, you know, let Karloff be in this movie, which he wanted to do, but the Broadway producers refused and it was just like the thing that they, it was a bridge too far. So as I mentioned that earlier, that there was a big gap between when this movie was made and when it was released. It was made in late 1941. It wasn't released until um, September 1944 because of a contractual obligation between Warner Brothers and the producers of the show um, because they they didn't want the film to be uh, released until after the stages the stage plays run. And then the other the final piece of trivia is that the murder cocktail is made up of arsenic, cyanide, strychnine, and elderberry wine. And the code administration did not want them to specifically say what was in the cocktail because they were afraid people would um, reproduce it. What? But <laughs> yeah. they did They did keep it in the movie. But they didn't keep it in the movie. <laughs> no, but I thought that, didn't they say it in the movie? Maybe they, they didn't say they, the ratios. They don't say the measurements. No, but okay. they... I mean, I think any combat, any amount of any of those things would be enough to kill you. Probably. Yeah, and I was gonna say like you don't really need to say like half a teaspoon of cyanide or something like that. That's funny about the phones too, because it did seem like there were a lot of scenes where Cary Grant was unnecessarily using the phone, like where it didn't make sense for the scene. Yeah. So that explains that. Yeah, product placement. Um, do you have any, uh, do you want to tell us about who you bioed? So I bioed Raymond Hart Massey, who played the very creepy Jonathan Brewster. <laughs> he was born in 1896 in Toronto, Ontario, the son of Anna, who was American born, and Chester Daniel Massey, the wealthy owner of the Massey Harris Tractor Company. Oh. And His branch of the Massey family emigrated to Canada from New England just before the War of 1812, but their family had actually migrated from England to Massachusetts in the 1630s. So he was, they were one of those old blue blood families. He served in World War I in the Canadian Army and then later again in World War II. And after the end of the First World War, he graduated Oxford University and entered the family business, but he found himself drawn to acting and his family finally kind of acquiesced and let him pursue it. (laughs) Uh, By 1922, he made his debut on the London stage in Eugene O'Neill's In the Zone, and he continued to appear in plays there throughout the 20s. Uh, In 1928, he was in his first film, High Treason, and he went on to portray many famous real-life and fictional figures, including Sherlock Holmes, John Brown, and many times Abraham Lincoln. Mm. I forgot that about him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he said he was typecast. He was one of the few actors who was typecast as a president, (laughs) 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 which was funny. And he's not even American, so that kind of is ironic. He was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor for his title role in Abe Lincoln in Illinois in 1940. And in 1944, he played Jonathan Brewster in this movie. Um, And he continued to appear in films into the 50s. And then he got involved in television and became popular there in the 50s and 60s. And he was well known for his role as Dr. Gillespie in the popular 1961 to 66 NBC series, Dr. Kildare. Hmm. Uh, He was married three times and of particular interest to our listeners... (laughs) His high profile estrangement and divorce from Adrian Allen, who was his first wife, was the inspiration for the script uh, for Adam's Rib. Oh, weird. Which we did in an earlier episode. And it's actually true that he married the lawyer who represented him in court. And then his ex-wife married the opposing lawyer. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, I just thought, fun fact. Somehow we can tie this to Catherine Hepburn. And he died at 86 of pneumonia in Los Angeles in 1983. Jen, who is his daughter? His daughter is Anna Massey, obviously named for her grandmother. Now I know that. She's, I think she's considered a British actress. She's done a lot of Mike Lee films and uh, other British TV. Trivia, trivia. trivia. (laughs) Additional trivia. Yeah, I thought he was 
mad creepy in this movie. <laughs> and yeah. I, it was funny to see that he had played Abraham Lincoln because it seemed like he was very much either like playing a crazy person or a president. But I like I got much more the villain vibe from him. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There wasn't room for two presidents in this movie. <laughs> no. All all of the credit goes to Teddy. <laughs> he did not break character once. It's amazing. <laughs> so should we get into it? I what what did you guys think? And have you seen this movie before? I've seen it a number of times. I think we've actually seen it together before. I, I don't maybe know I know I've seen it at least once before. I can't remember if it was with you or not yeah uh, we didn't we i didn't mention him in the cast but edward everett horton has a very small role in this movie um and i love him and i feel like i should just say that to get that out of the way because he is one of my favorite character actors um and i forgot that he was in this movie so i was delighted when he showed up as mr witherspoon from happy dale farms or whatever happy day sanitarium happy dale whatever that was. <laughs> happy days happy days <laughs> yes. he plays mr witherspoon on happy days um yeah um yeah what about you guys have you seen it before um so i think this is one of those i i've seen it as a play but i didn't really remember that much mm -hmm. about it i mean i knew like the premise of like these old women are killing people <laughs> but i didn't remember all of the stuff with jonathan and all of that and had you seen it like i i have not seen it before and i went into it completely eyes closed not knowing what was going on. I think I always thought this movie was about like people in a car chase or something. I had no idea what this movie was about. This is about a lot of uh, things but it's not about a car and, chase. Well, yeah, and it, it opened up with this like, you know, these newlyweds and I thought it was gonna like have something to do with his job. It just went sideways really fast. And I was like, this is amazing. Like this is the kind of crazy stuff that I like to see made now. Um, so I was very, very pleasantly entertained but yeah I was I was watching it I was like 90% of what's happening is happening in the same room so this must this must be like a play some kind of playwright wrote this I was I didn't I didn't know a thing <laughs> it's like a classic high school play people do yeah. girls a lot oh really oh yeah 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 that makes sense too because it's pretty clean and there's like a lot of a lot of parts that... a lot of parts it's yeah. clean except for all that murder all that moita. Yeah, I mean, but we don't mind murder in this <laughs> country, <laughs> do we? <laughs> Violence is okay. The thing I found the most striking about this movie was just like how tonally weird it is. <laughs> like, you know, one, like, you know, Cary Grant is mugging like crazy the whole time and everything's hilarious, but like also it's pretty dark too. It's like dark. 13 people buried in the cellar. It, it's more than that, though. I mean, that character of Jonathan is, and every, all of the scenes around it is, it's depraved. I mean, like, it is, it's like Mike saying, you know, I, I'm interested in seeing something like this now. It is, seems to be really ahead of its time. It's so, it's bizarre. And like, it's like a bad dream. It's like David Lynch or something. It's not just the murders. The whole thing is yeah. just dark and creepy. Dark and, creepy. and bizarre. Just bizarre. I said that earlier. Is it bizarre? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How bizarre. How bizarre. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I agree. And I thought it's, I actually had nightmares about the Jonathan character last night. Oh, really? Wow. Like, yeah, he showed up in my dreams. I mean, not, nothing crazy, but like the, the, I thought the scariest part of the whole movie, which was played for laughs, was when he says to Mortimer, remember when I used to tie you to the bedpost yes. and stick needles under your fingernails? Yeah, yeah. And then his response is, oh, it is you, Jonathan. I can't, how did I not recognize? Yeah. Yeah, that was very creepy. And like, yeah, I, I think I read, I feel like I read some trivia about that. Oh, I remember what I read about that. Frank Capra was drawn to this movie because he also had an abusive older brother oh. who ended up being a criminal. Which I was like, I what? I really wish that there was no element of truth in any of this because that's awful. Wow. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. 
that's the thing. Like, I really like Capra movies, but it's usually, I mean, like some of the typical tones of his films were in this, but then some of it was just like really dark, but they never get close to it. It's just kind of like, ha ha ha, like move on to the next thing. Um, So it was pretty disturbing. And the whole like plastic surgery on his face a bunch of times (laughs) was also gross. And even the scene where, you know, like Cary Grant's tied up and he gets out all the like surgical instruments, like he's going to torture him. Like that felt like a contemporary horror movie to me. Yeah. I mean, that's like, that happened in Skyfall, right? No, not Actually, the character of Jonathan, I think when we were watching it, I mentioned, he did remind me of Javier Bardem's Bardem's character in Skyfall. Skyfall, yeah. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. I mean, that's about as dark a storyline as I think you can find. It is bizarre that it's like in this uh, mid 20th century classic American screwball comedy, you know, like the man who came to dinner, but it's like the complete and total psychopath who came to dinner. Yeah. And the fact that it's family too, like mm-hmm. not only is he about to like capture, flay and kill someone, but that person is his brother mm-hmm. and he's doing it for gain ostensibly, but you know, like, you know, why would you draw that out on somebody whose family? It's just, yeah, it's strange. It's very like Michael in the Halloween movies. <laughs> I don't know those movies. I don't know those movies very well. Oh, well, he keeps trying to kill his sister. <laughs> that's, that's one of the main storylines. <laughs> but it kind Wait. of, like, the well, attitude towards mental illness was interesting. To- okay, so here, you need... I, we tried to save it for the podcast, but Mike and I were debating what was intended in certain parts of the movie. And so when he, when Mortimer immediately tries to like start committing his Teddy Roosevelt brother, is that because he was going to try to pin all the murders on him? I think so. And, and he was, he was tr- like, he was like, okay, th- this is like established fact that everybody knows that Teddy is crazy. And so like, we can just pin the murders on Teddy and then that way he goes to the sanitarium instead of anybody going to prison is was the way that I interpreted it and that like the lovely old aunts like get to live out their their days he'll be happy and safe at Happy Dale and no one else will die. I came at it from a very different angle. <laughs> I, I can see how that would make sense especially back then where you know like mental illness just basically made you guilty of anything but um my first thought was wow, he really, really cares about that cousin more than anyone else and wants to get him to safety instead of him being used in this murderous, you know, way that is really, like, abusive towards him and his mental illness. Um, And I was like, at the same time, though, maybe just don't do any of that and just leave on your honeymoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, Or just call the cops and be like, "Um, this is a problem. Can we sort this out? I don't know. It seemed... It seems strange that he would try to get him committed before being accused of the murders. Yeah, it wasn't really spelled out, but I interpreted it like you did, Hell, that it was, he was going to try to pin them on him and assume that they would just say, well, he's insane, so we're not going to hold him culpable. Yeah, I think it's a confusing part of the movie. One of the most confusing and least plausible parts of it to me. <laughs> um, I mean, a lot of it's implausible, but like, yeah, I, <laughs> but I feel like, you know, you, you take a certain amount of implausibility for granted in these types of films from this time period and these types of like screwball comedies. But I, going back to Cary Grant being displeased with his performance, I think on the one hand, I thought he was kind of brilliant, but on the other hand, that part of the story, I think he, Maybe it was him as an actor, maybe it was something else, but I think he failed to, my first impression is that he failed to make his motivation clear there, what he was really doing. It felt sort of pat to me, like, oh, this is just in the script. This is like a device in the script in order to like move the story forward in, in a particular way. And, and there was no really sensical motivation that I could, maybe, maybe it was a problem with the script or the direction, but maybe it was also Cary Grant just doing that mugging and I don't know, but that part of it was one of the, one of the aspects of the film that really didn't work for me. I really love the film. I think it's actually incredibly brilliant, but that part of it just rang stupid to me. (laughs) It seemed almost like they just, I mean, I think, I don't know if this was their intention, um, but it would have been, 
I think, better if they had kind of just painted him as completely losing his mind over all of it mm-hmm. instead of just like acting like he did at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it did seem like he just completely lost track of his responsibility in that situation and kind of, you know, his senses. And he like was just screaming at, you know, his wife and, mm-hmm. you know, making all the wrong choices. Um, yeah, it almost, it, it, he almost seemed like he was acting like someone who was in grief or something like that he was focusing irrationally on like something that didn't really make sense but not focusing on the things that were really more like it seemed he was just like frantically crest like grasping the papers and like yelling at everybody and running around whereas meanwhile there's like dead bodies piling up yeah it didn't (laughs) yeah it didn't really add up yeah i mean what like why didn't like Mikey said earlier? Why didn't he just be like, "I got, I'm going on my honeymoon. I wash my hands of all of you, and I'll, you know, I'll be back. I gotta go over Niagara Falls." And well, one of the, <laughs> the buried kind of unhighlighted. I mean, they talk about it, but they don't make much hay of the fact in the film that he actually is really afraid that he's as crazy as they oh, are. Oh, that's true. And at the end yeah. of the movie, he's like, "Oh, whew, I'm not. Yay, I'm not quite as crazy as they are because I'm not related." Cause he's not related. Yeah. I mean, but the, spoiler, but, and I feel like <laughs> we're a modern film, you know, if this were a film that was made today, that would be one of the major themes would be the Cary Grant characters struggle to deal with the situation because number one, he's in deep, you say grief. I think that makes a lot of sense because denial is one of the phases of grief. And I mean, he's been horrifically abused by this terrifying brother and yet he's totally glib about it. So it's, I mean, I take that as like, oh, that's denial. I mean, on top of that, this like fear he has that he's actually crazy. And I guess it's anachronistic to look back and go, oh, I wish they had, you know, illuminated those themes because that just wouldn't have happened in the 1940s. But it is a really interesting thing that's sort of in there. Like if you did a production of it now, the play or whatever, it'd be an interesting thing to work on kind of highlighting that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you could draw out the fact that, like, you know, he acts like, well, we don't share blood, so that means that I'm not going to have any mental illness. But, like, actually, you were raised your whole life with this family. of, (laughs) And to the end, he's, like, stays devoted to the ants, even though, like, if you think about it, the way they're murdering people is also really horrible. (laughs) And it's like, you know, it's played for laughs, but they are taking joy and like the the I've also found the scene like very disturbing where the one aunt comes home and then the she's like did you do it and the other aunt's like I did it I couldn't wait for you like and it's like can I see and like it wasn't like it didn't they didn't have the attitude of like oh we put this poor guy out of his misery they were like oh this is fun like we just killed another person yeah like (laughs) or the uh, the scene where Dr. Einstein's like basically like doing a tally of who's the better serial killer. Oh my um, god, I forgot. Yeah, so it's um, all yeah, very glib. Um, it does make you wonder, and maybe you guys know about this. Like, what the? What is the origin story for this? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> really weird. I mean, I can't think of anything, any other play or movie that's. I mean, maybe there are some. But I can't think of anything that's this weird like <laughs> just so depraved and this weird combination of depraved and horrifying horror movie and screwball it's just like who came up with this idea and why yeah. oh and that reminds me just just to like throw this out there like you remember in the beginning it was like and and throughout like it's all about brooklyn like this yeah. is the type of shit that goes down in brooklyn you know <laughs> brooklyn so you know right. anything goes in brooklyn they're insane in brooklyn <laughs> especially in Halloween. About. Uh, it reminds me kind of like of um like clue or yeah. like um uh not scary movie but the one that came after that can't remember which one it was but yeah like just like these off the wall goofy makes no sense people running around getting killed and yeah but clue was totally consistent <laughs> yes this this one just jumps around like you know it's it's a guy getting married then it's a guy trying to wrangle his murderous aunts then it's a family being haunted by you know someone from their past who's also murderous then it's mm-hmm. uh, a police officer who wants to write a script and like it's just 
bouncing all over the place. Didn't you guys think like how incompetent is this police force that like 12 local men go missing and like nobody, nobody knows like it. Look, nobody looks yeah. into it. Like it's surprising to me at all. Like yeah, <laughs> that would probably play out. Because they, if, although if, they probably would pay attention. I mean, I well, I don't know. Not not to get into this like social justice piece of it, but like the reason these guys are targeted is because they are they're, they're like invisible. single yeah single invisible men who don't have families and they like they target them because they think that they're lonely they don't care whether or not they actually are well, lonely. The they cops, just have decided the cops and all of the sort of leading lights of the community think that these are just two harmless Most old ladies, ladies. Yeah. so they just they would never even imagine you know yeah the tonal inconsistency is so right and it really had me like thrown for a loop for a good portion of the movie and i ended up and I don't know if this is true or not, but I ended up just deciding for myself that that was intentional and absolutely brilliant. That it was like, a, you know, it just had a million different crazy turns and none of it made sense. And it was totally, it just it was surprise after surprise after surprise. On and purpose. Tonal shift, tonal shift, tonal shift. Yeah, I, I sort of decided to conclude that it was on purpose because it's hard to imagine that it wasn't on purpose. Yeah. Um, and if it was on purpose, then that's, I just go back to David Lynch. I, that's the only thing I can compare it to is a David Lynch movie. It's just intentionally like a nightmare and it makes no sense. I actually think I found it more disturbing because of that. Because like one second I was laughing at like Cary Grant making faces and the next second they're talking about like, you know, doing like a plastic surgery to someone's face in like a basement. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I it because it felt like it was a stronger like pendulum swing to get to the scary parts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was like dead bodies in the basement. Oh, and even the cat's in on it. <laughs> like, just, like a cutesy cat thrown in just to make it completely not important yeah yeah I was trying to think of like other movies that this reminded me of and my like first thought was like to be or not to be which we've talked about where like there's such there's such a like serious mm. backdrop of um you know the war and the holocaust and you know the fact that there's this like play going on to like sort of hide the fact that there are all these jews but like you know and so there's this really serious like the stakes yeah the stakes are really serious but um but like what's different from that movie versus this one is that like this like these people are choosing to murder each other just like like in a in a vacuum rather than in like like on the global stage so I don't know I haven't thought of any other movies that this makes me think of I think it reminded me a little bit of Gaslight too not so much in like Mm -hmm. the tone but just more this sort of trapped feeling of being in like the house and the playing Mm -hmm. with light in the like Mm -hmm. this on the screen Mm-hmm. and sort of like a feeling of dread like that yeah yeah you know the cinematography and the way this the staging of it seemed very intentional and and that maybe that was one of the things that maybe decide that this all of these shifts and changes were intentional because the cinematography totally yeah I, I don't even know what to say about it but it was consistent in that it just kept you guessing and kept changing and kept being scary. I think that was intentional. One of the things that I read when I was looking at trivia is that Capra really wanted to make the the set around the house really creepy. And so there's like, there was a lot of like webbing and like, um, uh, like cottony stuff around the lighting to make it seem like there are clouds and there was like a, not a leaf blower, but like, like a fan <laughs> going to like keep the leaves moving, a leaf blower. To move the leaves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I didn't see the leaf blower. <laughs> yeah, um, they called in a guy from 2020 to run a leaf blower. <laughs> um, I did kind of like the Teddy Roosevelt stuff because he's he's one of my favorite historical figures and the way that they kept yelling like bully. I was like, go bull moose party. And like he was talking about like going on safari and stuff. Like I thought that added some levity and I like the fact that 
the whole community was just kind of like, oh yeah, he's mentally ill, but like he's fine and we're all okay with it. And like, we'll just, I, except that they wanted to, Mortimer was like, we're committing you for convenient reasons. <laughs> but <laughs> other than that, um, like the police were all like, he's fine. Right. Well, and they all had a role to play that one of them was like, I know that I'm the ambassador and I know that I'm the, like, who, I'm the vice president or whatever. Like, that's just yeah. the role that we play in this, like, fantasy world. I don't understand where he kept getting a bugle from. <laughs> I mean, like, that was the big complaint that the police kept coming over for. Mm-hmm. How'd they not just take it away? Like, did he just kept finding a bugle? I don't know. Maybe they didn't <laughs> want to take it from him because he got joy out of it. Well, then they wanted to commit for it. <laughs> seems like something you could easily fix but yeah I did think like living with him where he yelled charge every time he went up the stairs would have been really annoying (laughs) yeah also get a different clock that's not broken (laughs) um that product placement has to be like sponsored by some other like a clock company Timex or something (laughs) (laughs) I'll just throw Um, in here just briefly that like I don't know much about Teddy Roosevelt but I have known some friends who really know a lot about him and apparently he really was pretty cuckoo and it makes me wonder this is just a side note that like if rose teddy roosevelt was in here in the way that he is because people at that time in the 1940s were aware that teddy roosevelt was kind of loony just to put it in a very offensive vernacular sorry but (laughs) i mean he was eccentric right i mean yeah yeah, he, I've heard he was he was pretty unstable. I mean, oh. Well, can I go off on Teddy Roosevelt for a minute? Because I'm a yeah. fan. <laughs> go for it. Well, he had so it makes sense because not only did he have like a messed up childhood where he was sick all the time and like stuck in his bed and he was like a weakling, and then he got obsessed with masculinity as a way of like countering his like asthma and weakness, and that's how he got all into boxing and stuff. But then as an adult, I guess when he was the mayor of his wife and his mother died within like two days of each other. Mm. And like he was t- horribly overcome with grief. So like it kind of makes sense to me that he would be a little bit unstable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was all before he was president. So anyway, I'm just saying I, I like Teddy Roosevelt. There's a whole other episode about Teddy Roosevelt. That okay. <laughs> there will be no film. It'll just be talking about Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> the, the, uh, I almost <laughs> the one place I worked, we did an exhibition on like when he ran with the Bull Moose Party, and I almost stole one of the buttons from the archives, and then I was like, I can't do it. But like, <laughs> anyway, I, well, should we talk about that? Um, pub- you just said that on a publicly available podcast. I'm like, I know, I was, but I didn't. I said almost. Thinking <laughs> about it is not a crime, guys. That's Thinking right. about it is not a crime. Otherwise, we'd all be in jail. Yeah. <laughs> we'll just come in with <laughs> farms and sanitarium, whatever it's called, and you can hang out with Edward Edward Horton and sign. That's true. <laughs> just make sure you commit me before anyone finds out about the crime. Yeah. Okay, done. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Are you all ready to talk about the Bechtel test? Sure. Do you, do um, Mike and, and Jen both understand what the Bechtel test is? Mm-hmm. I believe so. You might as well explain it. I mean, I know it has something to do with the number of female characters or the prominence of the female characters. So two women in order to pass the Bechdel test in the movie has to have two women who talk to each other about something other than men. Oh, so that's interesting. Um, I mean, like men being in like a romantic context, but you know, that's open to interpretation. Huh. I would say if they're, yeah, if they're talking about their murder plans, but (laughs) they are murdering men. They are murdering men, yeah, who they feel sorry for because those men are lonely and womanless. Mm. I feel like, I feel like there are conversations that where they're talking about just their plans. I don't know. It's a tough one. I, I think it passes. I mean, there's definitely nothing romantic about their feelings for the men that they're talking about. And a lot of the times they're just talking about dead bodies. So that's true. That's true. So in the Bechtel test, the, the, I think you said this, but so the conversations between the women about men are about men as romantic. Romantic, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, well then that's, then I agree with you. 
that it does pass because <laughs> in a kind of delicious way, actually, now that I think about it, I wasn't thinking about the film <laughs> in terms of the Bechtel test, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the interesting thing about this movie is that there's two women who are like, we've made a, a decision about how we're going to be in the world. And it's like pretty powerful to like, just decide that you're going to take someone else's life. Yeah, and all men. <laughs> and they're all men. <laughs> Apparently there's no lonely women who need to be put out of their misery. Yes. Only lonely men. Yeah. For, so for clarification, was was Teddy their nephew also one of the brothers or was it a separate nephew or no, a he son? Was their, he was also Mortimer and Jonathan's brother. He was a brother. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think so. I mean, I do think that I wasn't like crazy. This is not strictly Bechtel, but this is, I wasn't crazy about the dynamic between the married couple in the movie. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, um, I wish that he had just like in the beginning been like, I taken Elaine into his confidence and been like, we got to figure this out together. He's a, he's really an unsympathetic character. Mortimer? Yeah. He's a total jackass. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> he he doesn't i mean from from the way that he deals with his wife which is mean and dismissive and self-centered to like just he thinks he has all the answers and he's totally wrong most of the time and he acts like an idiot and he's really not a sympathetic sympathetic character. Well, is he partly dismissing his wife because he's like, I mean, like it, this is kind of a, like a huge thing where he like goes thinking that he's going to go tell his aunts that he's gotten married, which is like in his like line of work where he's like a critic of marriage. Yeah. He but, like, he like, he, he goes to like tell his aunts that he's married, expecting them to be happy. And he goes in and instead they're like, oh, we've killed... 13 men which is not something that he was expecting at all because in his mind they were like just two sweet old women and so like his world is upside down and like yes he's very dismissive of Elaine but he also is like do not come in this house like I'm afraid for your safety yeah I mean I see what you're saying I just think that they have an extended conversation where she's trying to get through to him and he completely well yes uh just doesn't listen to her like he's just completely and yeah, you could chalk it up to him being uh, out of his mind from the bizarreness of the situation, but it's still like, could you just listen to this woman? I don't know. It's an interesting question, actually. I mean, that's good advice, yeah. generally. Would you just listen to this woman? <laughs> well, yeah, even after, like, Jonathan tries to kill her, he she comes upstairs and is trying to tell him, oh, trying to true. tell Mortimer... Like your brother just, or this dude just tried to kill me and he doesn't even hear that. He doesn't hear it yeah, at all. That's yeah. True. I mean, maybe I have a little bit of sympathy for him, but it, he exhausts it by the end of that scene. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I feel like he... Although he also, he himself has just been tied up and nearly murdered, so... By the brother who stuck pins under his fingernails. Right. So it's he's very yeah. traumatic. It is. I was thinking, like, maybe he should go stay at Happy Days just for a little while to, like, recover from this. Happy Days. <laughs> everybody, everybody needs a oh, visit. To Monday, Tuesday. <laughs> it, it actually, like, I, am, it, I imagined it to actually be, like, a nice place. But uh, the Cary Grant character, I feel like he, like, threw away any goodwill because like the opening scenes where he's looking to they're at the courthouse like trying to get married he is like embarrassed that he's getting married and he's like a total jerk to elaine <laughs> he's like i'm not gonna marry you how can i marry you when i wrote all these books about marriage being um what did it a farce and a fraud or whatever the title of that book marriage a farce and a fraud um i guess when you write a book called marriage a Far farce and a fraud you're just setting yourself up for a very long and happy marriage that you were going to have to like recant everything. Like you're just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. that's an opinion you're going to have to change. I feel like even worse than the fact that he was completely dismissive, but also really whiny and incompetent the entire film, mm -hmm. that he was just completely self-absorbed the entire film. Like yeah. in the beginning, all he cared about was his image. Then all he cared about was setting things right in his family's home the way that he wanted it to be. Then all he cared about was 
himself being safe, nobody else. Then all I cared about was the fact that he wasn't going to go insane and that he was okay. And like, it was just one thing after another where what was going on around him didn't really matter. And he just saw things the way he wanted to. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't like him very much, if you couldn't tell. (laughs) (laughs) We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Well, should we talk about social justice? (laughs) (laughs) How? (laughs) The cops. The cops, I think, are... Yeah, they're they're important. If you want to bring it to that theme, like... The role of the police is a sort of obvious community policing. Yeah, and just cops, you know, being less than effective. <sighs> yeah, I feel like if five people tell you there are thirteen bodies in the basement, that you should probably check the basement, even if you don't believe them. The the flip side of this that struck me as very odd, you know, just by contemporary experience, was the idea that there'd be like a beat cop who would just like stop by your house to say hi and like Mm -hmm. know about your family and like be like collecting toys and they'd be sending soup home for your wife and stuff like the idea of people having legitimate relationships with police that were you know more just like community-based than anything confrontational felt different than you know what we know now yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. I, I have a question to throw out. Um, one thing that struck me was when Dr. Eisenstein quickly changed from like willing accomplice to I've had enough, I'm going to knock out my partner and change sides or like just oh, try yeah. it away. Mm-hmm. So anybody want to take a stab at why that happened? How? What morality was underlining that? Well, he had expressed, Dr. Einstein had expressed horror at what Jonathan had done previously in the film. Oh, right, because he had, and he yeah. had said, like, there was no reason to kill uh, Mr. Spinalzo. Well, and also, he was the one who had to be part of the torture. Remember, he's like, oh, do we have to do it this way? This is not like, there's some, who have, there was some previous murder that was lots of torture. Ah, uh, like, yes, the oh, Melbourne, let's, yes. Let's, let's not do it that way. Like, he's obviously not enjoying this ride with Jonathan and he takes this opportunity to get away. Yeah. Yeah. And when he tries to discourage Jonathan from certain things, Jonathan threatens him Mm -hmm. too. So it does seem like there's no love lost there. Mm -hmm. So you, you feel like it was, uh, you know, he was always unwilling and he just kind of seized his chance basically. No, I think he just probably had enough. And, and was scared, it seemed like. Yeah, frightened for his own. Yeah, I mean, I guess like if I was, if I were imagining Einstein's backstory, that like when he first, I would imagine that like he first hooks up with Jonathan and somehow sees either he is just detached, doesn't care, or, you know, is he's obviously a morally deficient character, but that like over time, the level the depth of depravity and cruelty just like wears on him and he can't take it anymore that's kind of what i was reading into that but i don't think that it's there's anything moral about it it's more that he's like tired of it and probably sees like to read more into it sees that like jonathan has no moral code and like could just as easily eventually it's going to be him right he's going to be a victim. yeah i think that's right i love peter lorry (laughs) <laughs> he's fabulous he's so i mean everybody's really good in this film pretty much top to bottom maybe carrie grant is is weak in it but there are things about his performance like but laurie peter laurie is really good hillary's face just dropped when you said carrie grant is weak so i just want to point that out this is a pro carrie grant podcast that's right we, we, the, that's the one rule the, well the I one will, rule of fight club is never say anything bad about i always like, <laughs> well, I'm go back and watch it again right away because i like for a there was a period of time in this film watching it where i was like what is he doing what <laughs> is he doing like why is he acting like that but then a little bit further on, maybe 10, 20 minutes later, I was like, oh, actually the way he's acting sort of goofy and mugging and that sort of like he's on his own plane where he's like, it's almost like he's in a fugue state. 
actually kind of made sense to me. By the end of the film, and now that it's been a few weeks since I've watched it, I, I, I would want to check it again. But by the end of the film, I was like, oh, actually, I think his performance was in line with that tonal, those many, many tonal shifts that you're talking about, Emily, that he actually was sort of like flying along with those shifts in a way that worked in a bizarre way or like made sense at least. But it does make me want to watch it again and see what I actually, what I would think about it a second time. It's you, you could almost read it as like him having a nervous breakdown and actually mm-hmm. towards the end when he yeah was acting crazy and I I didn't remember what the end of the play was exactly I was thinking like oh this would all make a lot more sense if he ends up going to yeah. the yeah to the mental hospital as well like maybe they just all go <laughs> because you know, that's a lot. Even if you find out you're adopted, that's a lot to learn that like your whole family is like severely mentally ill and the majority are murderers. Yeah. Well, and you yourself have been subjected to very severe trauma. Trauma, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like if this were a serious play or just a slightly different play, he would, that's what would have happened is the whole group would have just been packed off to the sanitarium. Yeah. I think you're right, though, that nervous breakdown that maybe that's kind of how I ended up reading it. Like it's Cary Grant's screwball version of a nervous breakdown. And in that way, it works. Yeah. (laughs) Don't you want to see like, you know, if there was like an epilogue that's like, here's the honeymoon at Niagara. I was like, how are you going to just like (laughs) turn to be like, oh, we're happy newlyweds now. And I'm just going to focus on my new wife. Like how how on earth would that happen? It's a heck of a marriage story. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to return to the idea of um, social justice, and we, we kind of touched on this a little bit, just like it is, it was striking to me that, you know, everybody knew that Teddy was, you know, off his rocker, and they just were like, you know, we know what to expect, and we, we aren't, like, arresting him, we're just, like, coming and telling him for the 45th time, like, hey, you can't blow your bugle, whatever, and, you know, like, you know, and part of like it, like introducing the new cop to the beat is to like bring him to this house and be like, here's the role you have to play in this fantasy that this guy has, this grown man has about being Teddy Roosevelt. Like that's part of your job as being the cop on this beat, which like would be a totally different role, probably a totally different story. Um, if, you know, if the Brewsters weren't like rich, white, come over on the Mayflower family would be an entirely different, I think even back then would be an entirely different story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. That it was like a bunch of rich old ladies. And I mean, the, the, the sad part is like, if you think about it, the only one who actually was got justice for what he did was Jonathan but the two the two aunts didn't and then Dr. Einstein also was involved in all these murders and he gets away too so three out of the four murderer (laughs) murderers are just kind of get away scot-free yeah Um, not great and I know we're supposed to want them to get away like my feeling from the very beginning of the movie was like oh no these poor aunts like can't can't be like put away for these crimes but but they kill if you look people. <laughs> yeah i mean that's it's pretty messed up and yeah took glee in it too it seemed yeah yeah um well so are we ready to rate i think so how do you guys rate again could you tell me the it's zero to five star. zero to five stars with five being the top um and typically emily is very harsh and i'm very yeah <laughs> No, she is. She's, she's like the a, hardest. She's I like know. two and a half star Emily. That's what I call her. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless Siskel, he was Ebert. Unless Gene Kelly's in it, then it's like automatic four stars minimum. <laughs> oh boy. Pick off half stars for every minute that Gene Kelly is not in the book. <laughs> I'll go first. Yeah. Okay. I would give this movie four stars because I think like. I would definitely see it again. And even though like we have a lot of like questions about like the logic of this movie, like it was, you know, it was a very like uh, atmospheric movie to watch um, this time of year. So. I agree with that. I'd give it four stars. 
for all of the weirdness, I think it's a pretty brilliant piece of work. Without the makeup and the cinematography, I'm not sure I would say that, but um, with all of that in the bag, four stars, definitely. Right, over to you. <laughs> Um, I, well, I was planning to give it four stars as well, so. Now you've changed your mind, right? You realize um, now, now it's gonna be one star, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, I like this movie, I would rewatch it. It just felt like there was a lot, there, I mean, there was a lot of plot, like, too. Yeah. Um, but it seemed like the kind of movie where you would discover different things rewatching it, and that there was a lot to unpack. And I just, I enjoyed it. I also like when there are like well-developed older women characters too. Yeah. Just so unusual um, for that period. And anybody yeah. Else. So yeah, I enjoyed that. And I was legitimately scared by some of it, which yeah. was also good, but it was a level of scary that I could tolerate, which is <laughs> not, not very high. <laughs> Mike, how about you? Um, I was also planning for four stars as well. Um, I do feel like some of the kind of like back and forth running around the set, like bumping into each other, yelling at each other, like I guess like kind of the whole play aspect of it kind of detracted a little bit from it for me, but overall it was fun and interesting, like something you don't see every day, kept you guessing and also kept you yelling at the screen which is what a good horror movie is supposed to do <laughs> um so yeah I, I liked it i thought it was really good wow wow that's amazing four stars across the board yeah that's high for us it is high for us and rare um so hillary what's our next movie our next movie for the month of december is the bishop's wife <sighs> <laughs> is, are we doing three Cary Grant movies in a row? I, maybe we are. Yes. We are because he was yes. at Sylvia Scarlet. It's, yeah. it's totally randomly generated, guys. This is not. Yeah, you know, it's the, we stan uh, Cary Grant and unapolog unapologetically. <laughs> yeah, so he's going to go from um, bumbling drama critic to angel, <laughs> legitimate angel in the next movie. <laughs> Thank you to Jen and Mike for joining us. This was fun. Yeah, Thank you for having us. It was a good time. May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all... Tomorrow is another day.